Okay, salamu alaikum, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. We are skeleton crew now that we are in the holidays. So welcome everybody. Um, alhamdulillah, so excited for day four of Surah Al-Imran. Um, <clears throat> I thought that I would share the, the great thing about understanding that we are in a jihad of the intellect and the jihad of ideas um, and that all of the difference really is going to make uh, is going to come from education and knowledge and I think empowerment um, and dignity through knowledge. Um, I think it's a really important um, relationship that Muslims in particular have to have with the news of the day. Um, I was extremely um, I was like a, a news junkie to the extreme during the Trump era. And I think, like most people, after Trump left office, um, I was so traumatized by being a news junkie that I kind of came off the news and um, just to get a break, because it's like four years of just, you know, every day, oh my gosh, what has happened now? But now that I, I think I've gotten past that and I have found it really important um, to go back and just keep a pulse on what's happening in the world. And I've mentioned before, like some of my favorite go-tos are democracynow.org and theintercept.com because these are independent channels um, that are, um, you know, that pr provide the news um, without corporate funding. And so you get a very different feeling um, a very different exposure to what's happening in the world um, when you go to independent channels. Um, and of course, I've mentioned C.J. Werleman, who focuses on um, atrocities being committed against Muslims around the world. And even though he's not Muslim, he's dedicated himself to that because he recognizes that that is um, one of the biggest um, you know, issues and um, dangers in our world. Um, but I think as Muslims, um, my point being that we do have to have a very different relationship to the news than most people, and I don't think that we have a luxury of just turning it off because um, for a number of reasons. Um, one is that, you know, if we are the people that are supposed to be on the, the front lines of knowledge and our world and the epistemology of our age and, and how to make change for the better, it's important for us to be, um, you know, on, on top of what's happening. But also I think that in... Um, in this exercise of even learning the Quran and really focusing on um, expanding your knowledge on this front, it gets you excited about other, you know, ideas about what's happening in the world. And for me personally, I sort of enjoy, um, you know, saying, hey, did you hear this? And having people say, no, my gosh, I didn't know that. Um, it, it, you know, it's, you know, maybe that's uh, just, you know, maybe that's my ego talking, but I do feel that it is, important to keep people abreast of things that are happening. So I wanted to share, I was just curious to know, I went to democracy.org and The Intercept today just to get a taste of what is happening in the news. And of course, it is um, a very um, difficult and sobering and painful um, exposure, um, but it's, it's super important. So I thought I would just share some of these headlines. Um, I mean, obviously, we all know that um, Omicron um, is going crazy, and it's spreading now um, faster than Delta. It's surpassed Delta and accounts for at least three-quarters of the cases in the U.S., um, and that the World Health Organization has urged the cancellation of holiday gatherings um, because it's spreading at record pace. And I thought that a very powerful quote was, um, an event canceled is better than a life canceled. It's better to cancel now and celebrate later than to celebrate now and grieve later. 
And, you know, I see pictures of people that are gathering without masks, you know, all over social media and, you know, people and, and, you know, obviously governments and state governments that continue to act as if we want to get back to normal um, or, you know, so it, New York confirms a record number of coronavirus infections for the fourth straight day. Um, and I, I know people are, are keeping abreast of that, but it's important just to, you know, um, make sure, you know, when, when over 800,000 people have died in the U.S., um, that's an insane number. Also, um, this is all for, uh, from democracy.now, uh, democracynow.org, excuse me. Um, Himalayan glaciers melt at, at accelerating rate as climate emergency deepens. So there's a new study that finds that glaciers in the Himalayan mountains have shed ice 10 times faster over the past four decades than they did over the previous seven centuries. The study was published Monday in the Journal of Scientific Reports and estimates that glaciers have lost as much as 586 cubic kilometers of ice, enough to raise the global sea levels by 1 20th of an inch. Um, you know, these things, um, aside from making you sad and depressed, hopefully they also will, um, you know, allow people to see, you know, the, the, the range of ways in which Muslims can get involved and try to make a difference. Um, here's another headline. Egyptian court sentences leading activist Allah Abdel Fattah to five more years in prison for a retweet. Um, he was a human rights activist that was, um, you know, involved in the Arab Spring. Um, and that is obviously something that is important for us as Muslims to keep on our radar. Uh, the Burmese military massacred 40 men and buried bodies in mass graves, reports the BBC. And related to um, what we talk about here, um, about spreading um, equity, as Omicron spreads, there are there's a study that shows that if there are 100 plus firms across Africa, Asia, and Latin America that could make the mRNA vaccine if that technology was shared by these companies that hold the rights to that vaccine. And that obviously would make an incredible difference in our world, but for profit reasons, they're not willing to do that. Um, and then interestingly, um, in a testament to the power of wealth and hypocrisy, um, a headline, right-wing groups opposed to the government aid cashed in while collecting PPP loans. So as you know, during COVID, the government made loans available to organizations, you know, businesses, nonprofits, um, in the form of loans so that that would carry them through, um, you know, presumably the pandemic. So um, the people who, there's a new study that came out that the people that actually really benefited from these loans, um, despite their constant criticism of government giving aid, were right-wing groups, including um, the Prager Foundation, the Ayn Rand Institute, and Americans for Tax Reform. So studies came out that showed that they got incredible amounts of money despite having their donations increase during that same period of time. So, I mean, I think, you know, when I read these headlines, they also get me charged up. They make me want to fight. They make me want to, you know, think about what I can do to make a difference. And I think for Muslims, as we know, that that is 
our that's our purpose is to try and create goodness certainly in surah imran the message again is you know time and time again covers all of these things in life and we here talk about you know how it's important for us to understand the epistemology of the age and what's happening how we can make a difference so while we all you know settle in during our you know holiday season it's so easy to get comfortable at home get used to our routine um you know have our parties have our you know whatever um gatherings I think this is also an important way for us just to remember and remind ourselves of all the people around the world who don't have all of the blessings that we have here, not to forget, not to forget about them, you know, to donate, to do whatever we can to make a difference, um, and just you know keep keep you know in front of us what's really important, um, and that is service to Allah and trying to do something beyond ourselves. So um, just wanted to share that reminder. I'm so excited to continue on with day four of Surah Al-Imran. So thank you so much for joining us. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Al-Salatu wa-Salam ala ashraf al-Nas al-Nabi Muhammad al-Mustafa خاتم الأنبياء والرسل أجمعين المرسل رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب So, before we proceed, just a quick reminder. So, as we've noted repeatedly, the paradigm in Surah Al-Umran is that this Al-Umran is revealed in the overall context of the sombering experience that Muslims went through with the Battle of Uhud After the jubilation of Badr, it is time to get Muslims to understand at a deeper level what they are all about. And as we said, that it starts out with this paradigm of Al-Fi'atan, the two parties. 
the party that claims to be with Allah as opposed opposed to whatever is confronting it, whatever challenges is confronting it. And we noted that Al-Umran walks you through sort of a, a, a call it a dissection of the ethical anatomy of the party of God. And core with core to the various things that Al-Umran says is that you, that party, its aspiration, its ultimate goal is to that you, you strive to be godly human beings. And within this paradigm, Ali Amran introduces us to a or reinforces a number of humbling lessons about Rabbaniyun, including that they don't lie about God, that they aware they're they're meticulously aware of what it means to bear to bear a covenant, to bear a a, a mithaq, to bear a um, a trust. And core is the role of that they are meticulously aware of, as we said, qist is not just formal justice, but it is equitable justice. And that this party cannot be a party that persecutes or kills those who advocate justice and that this party, this ummah, well, for one, it is an ummah, so they, they, they have to be aware of themselves, have the consciousness of an ummah, but they are also aware that their core moral value is al-amr al-ma'roof al-munkar, and the investigation of a kitab and al hikmah, the investigation, the scrupulous studying of the book and wisdom, both in order to pursue that core value of al-amr bil-ma'roof al-na'an al-munkar. And in the context of establishing this paradigm, as we said, the Quran responds to a number of, or refutes a number of criticisms 
that arose contextually, but as we noted many times, that everything the Quran says about Ahli Kitab or the Munafiqun is a message to Muslims. It is not, the, the point is not to get, to make Ahli Kitab feel bad. Uh, the point is to educate Muslims about something. And we notice that among the things that Al-Umran flags as a very, uh, if you will, the, the, um, the uh, uh, battles of public relations, the, you know, the dynamics of PR, the, the, your faith has to be on solid foundations. So you are not influenced by the tactics of your opponents, such as converting and leaving, such as um, you know pretending to be Muslims and and then concealing the. Um, um. So in other words, you are not influenced by by what we are living today, sort of the Islamophobia of, of the age. And also, you are keenly aware of where your moral attachments and natural relationships are. You cannot claim to stand for ethics and a principle, but your relationships in life, your, your decisions in life, the choices you make in life, in fact, do not mirror or affirm these ethical claims. So you, you can't be emotionally um, uh, intuitively closest or closer to those who are not in fact part of your ummah and don't share your moral universe and your moral understandings. In this, of course, is a repeated warning in Al-Umran from hypocrisy and munafiqun and the role that nifaq plays that there are the clear hypocrites, those who are fully aware that they pretend to be Muslims but in fact hate Islam. But as we've noticed, last halakha especially, that Al-Umran talks at length about your relationship to confused people, to people whose moral commitments are in fact wishy-washy and unclear. Because if there is a, a sort of a, 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 as a human being, you must strive for moral consistency and ethical consistency. And Ali Omran also warns us about those who make the law, and I didn't emphasize this sufficiently last halaqa, 
But those who make the law sacred, overclaiming the role of the law. So when the Israelites claim to Muslims that, well, the, the dietary laws, the dietary restrictions are eternal. They are from the time of Ibrahim. The Quran comes back and says, this is a lie. You, this is, you are lying about God. And because, in fact, it is not about upholding a sacred law in itself and understanding the role of the law, understanding the nature of the law, the origins of the law, and not overclaiming which, of course, reminds us of some of the lessons of Surah Al-Baqarah. One thing I, I do, um, I forgot to, to um, flag. Notice in 91 that Allah says, That those who die, kuffar, falan yuqbala min ahadim mil'ul ard zahaba, walaw iftadabih. That upon death and resurrection, of course, the natural inclination of a human being who finds that they've lived their life. Uh, with a, uh, on a wrong path is to, you know, the, 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 the desire to, to buy uh, your escape. And Allah pointing to the rather obvious point that, well, you know, it, it, all the wealth of the world is not going to change your fate in the hereafter. The, the point that I've often read made, and it's worth repeating, it is rather in, in, intuitively obvious that if it turns out upon resurrection that you are going to hell, you would spend any amount of money to change your fate. And if you remember the example we gave a long time ago, the allegory of the difference between someone saying, you know, eventually you will be killed and someone holding a gun to your head at the moment. And the, the, the difference between two, the two scenarios is your sense of immediacy. The, a gun to your head gives you an immediate threat a gun that eventually will come to your head is easy to forget about and easy to ignore because it is not an immediate thing, although it might be as certain. The, the point that is often ma made is that the, if it will end up being that you would be willing to spend any amount of money 
to change your fate in the hereafter. The rational thing, the logical thing, well, if that's the case, then why don't you do it in the here now when it actually can make a difference? So that is why right after 91, in 92, it transitions to لَن تَنَالُوا الْبِرُ that you will in fact not achieve bir unless you spend from what you love. So in other words, it is telling you that the, the time is going to come where you will look back at everything you've made in life, all the money, all the property, all the material things. And at that moment, they will appear extremely insignificant because they're not going to buy you anything. Well, the wise thing is to say, well, whatever wealth Allah puts in my hands in this life, I'm going to, in fact, pay it forward because it can make a difference right now. What I give for the sake of Allah can, in fact, make a difference in my fate in the hereafter. And so the, that's the connection between the, or the transition between 90 and 91. And as I noted in the last halakhah, the, the, it's clear that the early Muslims understood precisely the, or the immediate reaction to the attitude towards material things. And going through the, the discipline of parting with the thing that you care about the most for the sake of Allah. Um, you know, of course, it's, it's quite remarkable because moral conscientiousness towards material things would before you spend on anything, especially things that you think you are entitled to spend on, things that you think you are entitled to spend on, and things that have a lot to do with, as they, in, in um, what's the language? In commentaries, would often talk that things that have to do with jah. Jah are, is um, prestige and appearances. Before you spend on things like weddings, funerals, etc., all similar events that a human being spends on in order to celebrate or mourn, and communicate a message, a social message. 
you are duty bound to think about the relationship of this spending to your ummah. You are duty bound to think about what is going on in your ummah and the needs of your ummah in relation to your spending. It's a very different relationship to money. So it is not the case, well, you know, I can afford it, so I can do it, and, you know, I'll just write out, you know, I can spend $20,000 on a celebration, and, you know, I'm just going to write to be a check for a $1,000 donation to this orphan or this orphanage. No, the very decision, now, I say this because when you look at the way Muslims live their life, Muslims in particular are excessive in spending on celebrations. The amount of exorbitant spending on weddings, as if spending on a wedding is going to bless the marriage. You know, people spend enormous amounts of weddings and then live in misery afterwards. It's simply haram for, I mean, for members, when you, you take a country like Egypt with the amount of poverty that exists in Egypt, and you look at how the high class celebrates their events. You take the amount of Syrian refugees that exists, an amount of Syrian orphans, and you find some Syrians spending thousands and thousands of dollars celebrating their events. The amount of poverty, dire poverty in Yemen and the people who have caused this poverty, the Emiratis and Saudis, spending exorbitant amount of monies on birthdays and wins and, 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 and weddings and talk about a relationship with Allah in light of this reality is a is a is is a form of nonsense. I mean, it, 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 uh, then you're inventing your own Quran. You're, you're inventing your, your own morality that has nothing to do with either revelation or hikmah or wisdom. Because if you, if you apply either the principles of revelation or the principles of hikmah, the principles of wisdom, both, they would tell you that this is morally wrong. But we don't bother applying either. And just go on. And just, I've often, when I, when I as a witness what my fellow Muslims are doing in life and the, the I often wonder what can you possibly say in the hereafter? You know, Allah allowed you 
gave you jobs, good paying jobs, you're making good money, and what can you possibly say to justify the money that could have fed an orphan or educated an orphan for six years was thrown on a plate of food in a, in a celebration. Uh, astounding, remarkable. Um, something that you, I mean, especially where I spent so much of my career in L.A., uh, something that you experience all the time and you see all the time and it's it's quite sad and okay and notice And this is still, you know, something we talked about last Hanukkah, that Allah explains the relationship to the relationship of Quranic ethics, the morality of the Quran, as if you are grabbing on to God's rope that this is a rope, a rope of morality, quintessentially a rope of core ethics that God extends to you. And you're the, the kuntum khayra ummah, that you are the best nation in joining the good and amr ma'yuf or nahra munkar or exploring, understanding, comprehending, and pursuing and implementing what is good, and exploring and understanding and, and comprehending and avoiding what is evil, because it is you can't avoid what is evil unless you understand it, and you can't pursue what is good unless you understand it, and unless you understand what is good based on a kitab wa hikmah, both revelation and wisdom. One cannot be without the other. And so a big part of how things go wrong is not at the implementation phase, but at the pre-implementation phase, which is comprehension. So if you don't have an understanding of what is good within your context, then you might become tempted to say, well, goodness is defined by dietary laws. The entire enterprise of an Amr al-Ma'roof wa Na'an al-Munkar wa kuntum khayra ummah, that you are to bear witness for God. If you equate goodness with dietary laws, then you've become deluded 
and you've repeated the mistakes that Allah is warning you about in Al-Baqarah and in Ali Umran about how the Israelites went wrong. It is not about a set a positivistic system of rules. But it is understanding al-kitab wal-hikmah. What wisdom and revelation, what revelation and wisdom call upon you to understand. So core, for instance, of real understanding of good, something that the Quran emphasizes repeatedly, is that the poor are taken care of, the wayfarer or the displaced human beings are taken care of, that refugees are taken care of. So in, in, when you, in fact, dive into the Quran, into Revelation and into Hikmah, your ethical past has signposts, has ma'alim, has clear signposts that guide your 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 past so the the essential role of equity society organized around the principle of achieving justice and so on and so forth okay And, uh, and one last thing is that, and part of that past of Al-Kitab wal-Hikmah is discernment and distinction with the other. So you notice Al-Umran repeatedly, time and time again, while it says, Man al-Islam, that whoever, it's, the, the way of the Lord is the, path of Islam, meaning the path of surrender, as we've talked about. But at the same time, Al-Umran repeatedly tells you, that when it comes to the other, you must discern who shares your ethical path and who doesn't. It is not a matter of labels, and it's not just a matter of you know raising flag or, or uh, um, rhetoric and slogans that part of discernment is to understand who truly wishes the best for you who is happy when something bad happens to you who doesn't for instance today who doesn't care about whether muslims keep getting killed in drone attacks or not that is one way to test who actually shares your moral universe and who doesn't. You know, obviously, someone who tells you, let's focus on making money and building luxury hotels and ignore the suffering of fellow Muslims, that's not someone that shares your moral universe or your moral path. Conversely, Someone who is Jewish or Christian but is deeply concerned about equity and deeply concerned about oppression and deeply concerned about the suffering of others does share your moral universe. 
אוקיי. Oh yeah, the, the thing that I was looking for earlier is an infaq fil makarim wal mafakhir wa kasbi sana' wa husn al-zikr bayna al-nas. That the, the spending on uh, bragging rights and prestige and spending on events and things that so that others will praise, you know, how, will praise you. is the type of spending that is wrong, that is not going to be justified. Uh, and this is precisely what Allah describes as the crops that are killed by a cold blizzard, that you've ultimately spent, but what you've gained in return is a cold blizzard. Okay, so we stopped at 123. So now Al-Umran focuses in or narrows in on after this sort of laying the foundations. Now the 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 punchline, the, the core message of Ali Omran itself. And it reminds Muslims it reminds Muslims with, of the victory in Badr and says, you know, you remember how happy and proud you were in the Battle of Bed, but you must understand that what matters is when you are tested with real hardship. And it, at the very outset, reminds Muslims that Uhud was such a difficult test that even among the Ansar, among those who had converted to Islam and had supported and stood by Muslims in Badr, that when Abdullah ibn Ubay withdrew as one-third of the army, as we talked about last halaqa, that at least two clans, one from the Aus and one from the Khazraj, nearly failed the test and followed Abdullah in withdrawing. And that would have been, of course, a, a, a huge blow. But go back and think of, you are marching in this battle in, in Uhud, to, va- you, to confront a vastly 
uh, an enemy that vastly outnumbers you and far better armed than you are. And in the midst of this march, Abdullah bin Ubay withdraws with one third. That's quite a test. Because for you to say, well, no, we, we, you can imagine that for so many people, this is such a moral blow that you don't know whether you want to continue anymore. And then notice, استقولوا للمؤمنين ألا يكفيكم أن يمدكم ربكم بثلاثة آلاف من الملائكة منزلين. So the Quran talks about the Prophet telling his followers, wouldn't you be satisfied? if Allah sent angels to fight next to you. Now, this in the literature generated a, a, a substantial discussion. Um, first, let me read the translation. Maybe it will, this will help. Um, okay, so... And remember when you when you, you did say unto the believers, is it enough and not enough for you to know that your sustainer will aid you with three thousand angels sent down from high? Nay, but if you were patient or you are patient in adversity and conscious of God, and the enemy should fall upon you of a sudden, your sustainer would aid you with five thousand angels swooping down. The reason that this gives many Quranic commentators pause is if God would have sent angels to fight 3,000 or 5,000, the, the results of the battle of Badr would be clear. I mean, if you have angels fighting next to you, you're going to be victorious. And in fact, you don't need 3,000 or 5,000 angels. There are, you know, from everything in the tradition, a single angel could do the job. So what is the point of this narrative? And here, there's sort of the, the, the um, literal um, approach. And the literalist said, well, you know, in Badr, God sent angels to fight next to Muslims. And in Uhud, God sent angels to fight next to Muslims. But when Muslims failed, in discharging their obligations, when the the, the um, 
when they erred, as, as we'll talk about, the, the, I mean, most people know the story of Battle of Badr, but, Battle of Uhud, but just we'll, we'll go over it quickly, uh, just so we make sure we're all on the same page. The, then that's how the, the defeat happened. The second group of commentators, which I think are, are the, ones I, the, the ones that I agree with, is say that the whole narrative about angels is not to say that angels were in fact sent to fight next to people, either in Badr or in Uhud. But it is a, um, that that entire narrative is symbolic. It's like saying, you know, you, you go into battle with the bravery and the certitude and the resolution of a people who know that God being with you, it is as if angels, as if. So 3,000, 5,000, the number doesn't matter. It, it's all symbolic. It's like saying, you know, if you persevere, God could send the powers of the universe to aid you. It is a it is as if you, you go into battle knowing that God's will is the equivalent to angels fighting next to you. The point is not that you can actually see an angel fight next to you. And I don't remember uh, how Ahmed Asad uh, how Muhammad Asad deals with this, but knowing his methodology, I, I would probably I would guess that he would have chosen the symbolic approach because um, uh, yeah, I'm right. Okay, so he says. As regards these varying numbers, 1, 3, and 5,000, they would seem to indicate the unlimited nature of God's aid to those who are patient in adversity and conscious of God. It is reasonable to assume that the Prophet thus exhorted his followers immediately before the Battle of Uhud, that is, after 300 men under the leadership of Abdullah bin Ubayyah had deserted him and some of the others almost lost heart in the face of the great, greatly superior enemy forces. So yeah, so he he ends up as I expected. So the the point is the idea of God's unlimited support. Um, otherwise, you get into the the you know the problem of uh, of reconciling between all the traditions that talk about a single angel can bring end to life on earth and the and try to make that consistent or 
jive with the idea that you need 3,000 or 5,000 angels to fight in a battle. Um, it is just that the type of literalist interpretation ends up creating quite a few theological problems. Okay. And this is indicated in 126. So the translation, and God ordained this to be said by the Prophet only only as a glad tiding for you, and that your hearts should thereby be set at rest, since no succor can come from any save God the Almighty the truly wise. So 126, the, all those who understood this symbolically, part of their interpretation is what 126 says, is that, that Allah only made this as a form of moral support, which again supports the idea that this is not an actual physical manifestation of angels in battle. Okay. So here let's just. Uh, so we know that after Abdullah ibn Ubay withdraws, the remaining Muslims go to battle in, in Uhud, and as I'm sure you've heard the story before that there are, the to prevent or to avoid the Muslim army being flanked uh, from behind, a group of um, arrowmen are placed on a mountaintop and the, the battle, in fact, goes well at the beginning for Muslims, and the uh, Meccan army retreats, and the people on the mountaintop, the arrowmen, when they see that the, the Meccan army retreated, they think that the, the battle is over, and they immediately think of their share in the spoils, what was left behind in the battlefield, and so they abandoned their position on the mountaintop to rush to try to get their share of the spoils. And only 10 arrowmen uh, remain on that mountain. The, the, the people who actually stay in their post and do not uh, disobey the orders that they were given uh, are only 10. And in fact, the Meccan army, as I'm sure you, you know, with the leader, under the leadership of Khalid ibn al-Walid, flanks Muslims from behind and ends up killing the 10 that remained on the mountaintop because they're easily overcome. They're, they're, they're not enough to prevent the Muslim army from flanking, Mus the, sorry, the, the Meccan army from flanking Muslims. And the, the, the Meccan army surprises Muslims 
on the battlefield from behind after they've, they've thought that the Meccan army had withdrawn. And of course, it, you know, Muslims are, uh, are in a panicked retreat and they end up cornering the, the prophet with a small group of companions near the battle, near the mountain of Uhud, a, a, not a very high mountain. It's actually sort of a plateau. But it's, I mean, I've seen it, and it's it's interesting. It's sort of rocky, and and the Prophet is wounded when the the small the handful number of companions that come to 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 are able to come to his aid and and in the fight uh he's seriously wounded his shoulders dislocated and he is uh, struck on the head and there is a, a leaving a serious wound and a serious scar But the Meccan army, because those who Muslims who were, who, although were in a, in a panic withdrawal, but still fought uh, virulently, and the, the Meccan armies, you know, did not want to sustain further losses, and they end up withdrawing. And there is a rumor, however, the next day that the Meccan army is m might use the opportunity that the battle didn't go well for Muslims and that the Mus Muslims had sustained so many losses and news of the withdrawal of Abdullah ibn Ubay with the 300 people and news that the Jewish tribes in Medina are jubilant about the Muslim loss, there is a rumor that the Meccan army is going to use this opportunity and invade Medina. So although wounded, and many of, not just the Prophet but many of the companions were seriously wounded and bleeding and so on, the Prophet goes out with an expedition of 70 people, which is quite small, out to meet and prevent the Meccans from in invading Medina. As it turns out, the Meccans had lost heart. They, were, they weren't interested in pursuing their attack, and the suggestion goes nowhere. There were people in, in, uh, in Mecca that said, well, why don't we just, you know, uh, further... Uh, uh, why don't we just uh, pursue or, or go further and, and invade Medina once and for all and get it over with? But ultimately, the leaders in Mecca said, we, we've sustained enough losses, they've been defeated, um, they're, they're beset by internal dissensions. You know, 300 people, followers of Abdullah ibn Ubay is not a small number, considering how the number of the Muslim army itself. And the... Jewish tribes are saying that 
there's a lot of dissension, a lot of hurt, and a lot of, and so on. And so they think that the defeat is worse than it actually is. But note a, a sort of a sidebar, but an interesting one, that at the point of utter weakness and you know, Muslims are disheartened. They, they've sustained serious losses and wounded and hurt. But the Prophet is keen at this moment to send a message of strength. So although they are hurting, he takes 70 people and goes out Obviously, if the Meccans were actually going to uh, develop their attack against Medina, 70 people are not going to do much. But the point he was going for is to send a signal that we're not broken. We're ready to fight. Which is a remarkable remarkable message of, of... strength and and of course when he says the next day I um, ask for volunteers to join him to go on this sort of um, public relations campaign because it's it's not I mean it's not clear whether in fact he, he uh, you know he really thought that there were going to be a military engagement but it was clear that he was sending a message of strength. 70 are the ones who volunteer to join the Prophet in this expedition the the day after. And most of the 70, according to so many reports, that nearly every one of those 70 that volunteered is bleeding or hurt or bruised or injured in some way or another. And so... They, these 70, set an example. And I think it was a very important moral and spiritual example for other Muslims in Medina at the time. Because while so many Muslims became disheartened or were actually injured and were nursing their wounds, the fact that 70 of them still went out with the Prophet in principle ready to fight to death had a huge impact. And when you get into the micro reports, I think that those 70, the, the moral boost or the, 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 um, the boost in morale was sufficiently impactful to overcome the sense of hurt that came from the 300 that withdrew with Abdullah bin Ubay. And you wonder if, if you, considering how the battle went, and then the Prophet, after going out in, in, in this expedition the day after was 70, he returns to Medina. Well, there are the arrow men 
who abandoned their post on the mountain. And because of them, 10 of their um, comrades who remained on their post got slaughtered. But also because of them, the Muslim army was flanked. And because of them, there were, there were severe losses because the Muslim army was flanked. It is quite remarkable because then what you would expect is that after the Prophet returns to Medina, that there would be absolute hell to pay. With the 300 that withdrew, and with those who abandoned their posts. And in fact, the Quran is the one that deals with them. But the Prophet himself, his reaction was far more discerning. For reasons we'll talk about later, he doesn't move against Abdullah ibn Ubay. While clearly, now it became clear that you're Abdullah ibn Ubay, you and whoever follows you, you guys are hypocrites. You abandoned us in battle. We're no longer going to pretend that you're a part of us. But at the same time, there is not what you would expect with the practices and customs and traditions of this era, of this period, in this time and this place, of going after Abdullah ibn Ubay and his followers in a, um, uh, uh, in a vengeful fashion. There is a moral distancing, but no assassinations, no arrests, no vengeance. And even the arrowmen, the focus became on repentance and um, regret. In other words, on people that disobeyed, truly being sorry and willing to make up for their mistake rather than punishing them for what they've done. Now, this will be important as we, we go for in the rest of Ali Amra. So, uh, yeah, before, one more thing. When the Prophet ﷺ is injured and bleeding. He says, it, what became rather a famous statement that how can a people who have done this to their prophet be blessed? Or how can God bless a people who have done this to their prophet be blessed? And once he saw how many of his um, disciples have been martyred and the, the enormous 
amount of hurt that Muslims were in, the Prophet prays to Allah that they be punished or that they be doomed for what they've done, the Meccans. Okay, so then you notice You notice uh, in 128, So, first, right after telling him, starting to deal, to deal with the Battle of Uhud itself, First, a very humbling message to the Prophet himself by telling him that Muhammad Azad translates it, and it is no wise for thee, O Prophet, to decide whether God shall accept the repentance or chastise him, for behold, they are but wrongdoers. Is, it is not up to you and there are it's like saying what well, you know it is whether they are punished by God or not punished whether they are forgiven by God or not it is not up to you and so there are two set of reports about 128. One set of reports, which are probably the likely the more accurate one, is that it was said specifically about the Prophet being so hurt when he sees all his compatriots and all companions that were killed or, or injured. And he prays to God to punish the people who've done this that Allah responds to this by telling the reminding the Prophet that your role is as a messenger. Your role is not to pray that Allah would punish anyone. Even with the amount of harm and hurt that you've gone through. The second set of reports say that this was revealed about an event in, in the Sira called the event of Bi'r Ma'ina. Uh, this is rather a painful event where a group pretended to convert to Islam and they asked for people to come to their clan to teach them the Quran and teach them Islam. And the Prophet picked a group of companions and sent them to the people of Bi'r Ma'ina to teach them Islam and only to find that it was a trick, that this group 
was in alliance with the Meccans and that they pretended to convert to Islam. And when the companions arrived there, the companions who were supposed to teach them the Quran, they executed them. And upon hearing of the betrayal and the treachery, the, the Prophet in anger prayed that Allah would punish the people of Bitter Marina. And the, the second set of reports say that the, this ayah was telling the Prophet even that even though your your disciples, your companions were betrayed and killed, it is not up to you to pray that Allah would punish anyone. I think the the Ma'ina reports are less reliable than the ones that say it was specifically about the events of Uhud. But there is a moral lesson here. And something that, of course, was noted by a number of, of, of commentators, that when Allah is telling the Prophet it is not up to you. And our example in life is the Prophet. That even at the point of serious harm and serious hurt, the dua that the Prophet taught us is simply to say, Hasbi Allah wa ni'mal wakil. Allah is, is my ally and my comforter. And to say, Minnu lillah, or minhum lillah, meaning, may Allah deal with them justly. It, is, it has to do with your psychology. Is your psychology, and again, we're talking about the fi'a, the, the fi'a fi the, the group that is the godly group. So we are setting aspirations, principles, ideals that you strive for. The ideal that you strive for, perhaps Allah's response is to guide someone who has treated you unjustly and betrayed you. Perhaps God will guide that someone and show them the path long after you're dead or long after the events that occurred to try to avoid the darkness of the heart, to try to avoid a heart full of darkness and um, grudges. So a priori, if the Prophet ﷺ is told, be careful when you, you know, when you pray that Allah punishes people, be careful because it is not up to you. A priori, it applies to us human beings. A high morality that, of course, all the, you know, from when the especially people like Ghazali or people like Ibn Arabi or Ijilani 
or Ismail Haqqi, when they write about it, they, they talk about it as, okay, here's the ideal, is that you, you work to be a Rabbani, to work towards getting to the point where you say, I leave it to God. May God respond, either with forgiveness or guidance or punishment. It's up to God. But as far as I'm concerned, hasbi Allah wa ni'am wakil. It is enough for me that I am on God's side or that God is with me. It's hard. It's hard. Because someone hurts you, you want to see them hurt back. But it is what you strive for, what you work for. Okay. So, this is, so, and, and of course, notice, every time that Allah reminds us that it is up to Allah, Allah will always follow this with, وَلِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ يَخْفِرْ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ وَيُعَزْلِ مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَاللَّهُ غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ This is 129. That, because the reason it is not up to you, is because you exist in the same way that your attitude towards money is that there is an owner already. All the money that you make, you're actually not making it. It is God who owns it. And you're just entrusted in it. In the same way, forgiveness or punishment, vengeance, winning or losing, to be the party of God, you have to accept the very hard realization that it is up to Allah. And I do what I have to do. My job is to investigate, understand, deliberate, pursue, comprehend, and further goodness, and resist evil. That's my job. Results are to Allah, and my heart must elevate to comprehend and mirror that job. You know, all of us been in 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 job situations, right? Where someone is re, uh, as an academic all the time. I run into people who who you know, are extremely unfair. We've done horrible things to you. And to, to cleanse yourself so that you say, minnu lillah. Minhu lillah. May Allah deal with them. Rather than seeking vengeance or punishment, it's, it's uh, yeah. Okay. Now, and right after that, notice, 130. It, right in talking about a battle and what happened in the battle, and it talks about riba, why? And the answer, although you will not find this in the tafsir, um, 
Because again, you know, tafsir tend to deal with every ayah uh, on its own. I wanted to know why. I wanted to really understand. What, what, okay, so we're talking about Uhud. So, and then suddenly we have this ayah on about riba. Why? And I, that puzzled me. And it took me a long time. I, I was researching. I was researching all the responses, reported responses to Uhud. Any, I mean, and a lot of poetry. And, and then I found... In a number of traditions that said that some reports said that this was a narrative among the munafiqeen, among those the followers of Abdullah ibn Ubay. Some narratives said no, it was not among the the followers of Abdullah ibn Ubay, but it was actually among some of. The, the the people who fought in Uhud. And that is, they started, there was loud talk that the reason we lost this battle is not because the arrowmen withdrew from the mountain, but because we were, uh, we our arms or the, the Meccan army was vastly or much better armed than we were. They had better more horses, better horses. They had better camels. They had better hardware and so on. And that the reason they could afford to do all of that was because they didn't have restrictions on profits, especially So some people started talking about, well, you know, how how does this, how does the prophet expect us to fund the war effort? He keeps telling us, donate, donate, give up your money, you know, uh, so on. Uh, but he prevents us from making the types of profits that we used to make when usury was allowed. And th this was the aha moment for me. When I saw these reports, I said, that's what it's talking about. That when it says, do not it reaffirms that riba, akli riba, is an evil. It was a direct response to those that were second guessing or the and the 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 narrative and especially. The, it, it was, you know, the, the, the part was like the complaining about the emphasis of the Prophet and the Quran on donating and saying, well, but at the same time, our incomes are not the same because we can't do riba anymore. 
And of course, you see the moral temptation or the, the, the temptation to redefine your ethics because of the war effort. And to say, well, we've got to win a war. And in order to win a war, we've got to play the game. Now, notice, so, God, if, if Muslims would just understand. Notice now, 134 and 135. So it deals with Uhud, an enormous amount of hurt, enormous amount of confusion, the temptation to blame one another, because that's what defeat does to people. You look for blame, right? The temptation to say, well, it's this. Well, the temptation to doubt the ethical project of the Prophet, and the Quran comes and tells you what lesson right after Uhud? الَّذِينَ يُنْفِقُونَ فِي السَّرَّاءِ وَالضَّرَّاءِ وَالْقَازِمِينَ الْغَيْزِ وَالْعَافِينَ عَنِ النَّاسِ وَاللَّهُ يُحِبُّ الْمُحْسِنِينَ وَالَّذِينَ إِذَا فَعَلُوا فَاحِشَةً أَوْ ظَلَمُوا أَنفُسَهُمْ ذَكَرُوا اللَّهَ فَاسْتَغْفَرُوا لِذُنُوبِهِمْ وَمَنْ يَغْفِرُ الذُّنُوبَ إِلَّا اللَّهُ وَلَمْ يُصِرُّوا عَلَى مَا فَعَلُوا وَهُمْ يَعْلَمُونَ So what does it tell you? It cuts to the chase, to the heart of the matter, and says no. You want to know what your cure is? You want to know how you're going to heal from this? The way you're going to heal from this is those who spend in whether in ease or in hardship. So cut this nonsense about, oh, your, your profits, your ability to make money has been cut out. You know, that's nonsense. No, you spend in hardship. And and those who control their temper and their anger, defeat, betrayal, treachery, equals a lot of anger. You're hurt. And it comes and says, you know, you want to heal your relationship to material things. Give up your materials. Break your dependence on material things. Two, control that desire for vengeance, for blame, to act out on your hurt. Qazimin al ghais. Ghais is when you're, you're like, Boiling inside, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really annoyed, I'm really angry. That's guys. And those who forgive people, you've just been betrayed, treachery, defeat. And what does Allah tell you? Forgiveness. And underscoring, and God loves those who do beautiful things. And 
as to you guys who know you screwed up, you know who you are. You know that you've messed up. As to you guys, well, those who, now, of course, Quranic interpret, interpreters, unfortunately, read this and say, oh, fa'lul fahisha, this is talking about fornicating and adultery. No, fahisha is any grave sin, including fornication and adultery, any grave sin, but also in battle, thinking about, oh, what stuff can I get instead of protecting your fellow Muslim? Looking out for number one. That's that's a fahisha. You you worried, you became greedy. And you started thinking about me. What am I going to get? Not protecting your fellow Muslims. That was a sin. So it's saying, and those who, when they commit an injustice against themselves, they're not stubbornly argumentative and say, no, but this was this and this was that and there was a reason for it. And you have to understand, they confront the fact that they were unjust, that they acted in a lousy fashion. They drop the act, drop the arrogance, and repent. When Grace told you a while ago, I was once sitting in bed chanting, if Muslims would only understand, if Muslims would only understand about Al-Imran. If you're anything like me, my journey was Al-Imran, left me in tears. This is a God teaching, not a human, this is a God teaching. You have the trial and tribulation of your life. Your friends have just been killed. The prophet's uncle have just been killed and his stomach split open and his liver taken out. Yeah, Allah understands the hurt. But there are principles that cannot be compromised. That the, 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 now you understand why Allah is saying be discerning about the people of the book. Because the temptation is one of to be angry and to want vengeance and to want to punish the world, to lay the blame on everyone else but yourself. But the lesson from Uhud is very sombering. What time is it? Oh, let's take a five minute break. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. About 136, uh, um, interestingly, you read in in the reports um, some that say that 136 was revealed in uh, 
in response to there are a couple of I mean there are variant reports some say that there was a, a, a fellow who owned a shop and um, an attractive woman came to buy from him and somehow he ended up uh, seducing this attractive woman and they went into a back room and um, fooled around. And then afterwards he felt very sorry and he went to the prophet and, and said, I did so and so and um, wanted to repent. Um, there's another narrative that says that there was a um, an Ansari, a, a native of Medinian, a Muslim. There were two of them. And that, anyway, the, the, it's a long story, but basically that one of them ended up um, committing a sin, fooling around with the wife of the other. Um, and uh, they, that they found themselves in a, in a, they were visiting and so on, and then the temptation, and then they fooled around with the wife, and then he repented and, and, and um, went to the prophet and said, I did so and so, and, and wanted to repent. And you know these events. Um, I'm not sure if they if they occurred or not. I mean, they they're it's quite possible that they're based on some truth in fact. Um, it is not surprising that people would be tempted and would. Uh, Act inappropriately and then feel sorry and then go to the prophet and and, and um, you know say I messed up. What do I do? Um, but there is the evidence that these were an occasion for revelation is extremely flimsy. Uh, and again, the the phenomena that we see quite often where an interpreter would think or a Quranic a commentator would think that, well, it would sort of m match events to Quranic verses. And it starts out in saying, well, you know, this Quranic verse applies to this event, and then eventually it becomes misremembered as an occasion for revelation. So it's highly doubtful that these were actual occasions for revelation. The, the subject that is being addressed here in Al Umran is Uhud and the aftermath of Uhud. And sort of, you know, the 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 tendency to take verses in isolation and to um, as we've seen repeatedly uh, results in some, you know, ends up in some very um, um, some very awkward results, or, or produces some very awkward results. Okay, anyway. And then, subhanAllah, so, 
it is as if Allah is telling us, and re reading, you know, the text of the Quran was this heightened sensitivity is very necessary. So notice, right after 136 or 135 and 136 that tells us about those who spend about um, controlling anger or ghayz, about the role of forgiveness, about the role of repentance, admission of fault. Allah tells us, look, قَدْ خَلَتْ مِنْ قَبْلِكُمُ السُّنَنِ قَدْ خَلَتْ مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ سُنَنٌ فَسِيرُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ فَانْظُرُوا كَيْفَ كَانَ عَاقِبَةُ الْمُكَذِّبِينَ Look in the past. It is as if saying, if you study the past, you will see the wisdom from what I'm telling you, that in the aftermath of defeat, people start becoming stingy, hold on to material things because they feel insecure. In the aftermath of defeat, people want to blame others. People want to find fault people become vengeful, angry, resentful. People become stubborn. They don't want to admit fault. So 137, Allah says, reflect upon the past. And then the affirmation that understand this is a guidance for people. Bayan is something something that, that clarifies anything that explains, that clarifies, that sheds light is a bayan. So and guidance and counsel. And then consoling you, but at the same time, the type of consolation that calls for reflection and introspection. So, look at the past. You'll see the wisdom of this counsel I'm giving you. Understand that this is counsel and guidance for you. But, Allah knows you're hurting. Well, ولا تهنوا ولا تحزنوا. Don't despair. And don't become weak and defeated. Because understand, if you أنتم الآلون, the, the real issue is moral defeat. You are superior. Now, superior here doesn't mean victorious. 
it doesn't mean you control others or you have power over others. You have autonomy over yourselves. In kuntum mu'minin. Antum al-alan, you are firm in your moral anchor. That's an alawn. That you are, it's like saying, you are free. You're, 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 you are in liberation. You are not subservient to others. You are not, you, your moral being is not defeated. If you are true believers. And understand something. That it is God's will, defeat and victory. A civilization rises, a civilization falls. A people become powerful and dominant, and a people become defeated and broken. This, these cycles are in God's hands. You do your part. Especially what Allah wants from you. And yattakhida minkum shuhada. Wallahu la yuhibbu al-zalimin. But understand that in this cycle, Allah is searching for those who bear witness to the truth. For Allah's sake, take from you or amongst you witnesses and the, the, the constant rule law is Allah doesn't love the unjust yes the unjust might win yes the unjust might rise the unjust might dominate but that doesn't mean Allah loves the unjust. It is the cycle of life, the, the affirmation of the rules of causation and rules of consequence. And those who work hard will achieve results. And those who don't work hard, those who are more just will tend to be more successful than those who are more unjust, etc., etc. Whatever the laws of the cosmos and history are. Okay. وَلْيُمَحِّصَ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَيَمْحَقَ الْكَافِرِينَ One for you, one, so that Allah, let's see how Muhammad Asad translates, um, yeah, Muhammad says, so God might render pure of all dross those who have attained to faith and bring to naught those who deny the truth. Um, the yumahis al-tamhis is to purify something by exerting pressure so that in fact trials and tribulations in order to bear witness you must also understand that trials and tribulations are the forms of pressure being exerted by Allah to 
purify your hearts and your souls. أم حسبتم أن تدخلوا الجنة ولما يعلم الله الذين جاهدوا منكم ويعلم الصابرين. Did you think that you would attain salvation without Allah sending situations that test and prove who are among you steadfast in jihad and who amongst you are truly persevering? This is, of course, 142. Okay, then we get to 143. وَلَقَدْ كُنْتُمْ تُمَنَّوْنَ الْمَوْتَ مِنْ قَبْلِ أَنْ تَلْقَوْهُ فَقَدْ رَأَيْتُمُوهُ وَأَنْتُمْ تَنْظُرُونَ So, 143 reminds a group of Muslims of something very interesting that there are a number of Muslims after Badr, after the Battle of Badr, wrote poetry saying, talking about those who uh, were martyred in the Battle of Badr and saying, you know, we wish we were there in their place. We wish we had attained martyrhood, uh, martyrdom. Um, and a number start saying, oh, you know, we... If if we had joined people who converted to Islam after the Battle of Bad, we're saying, you know, if we were there in the Battle of Bad, we would have done this and done that. The, that impulse that of people talking big or feeling big without being tested, so it's like Allah is, is saying, well, you know, Allah knows that some of you were um, feeling, you know, t talking a, a big game before they were tested. And now that you are tested and you are actually presented with the threat of death, reflect upon what, how you've reacted. And... Notice here that some of them passed the test. Some of them were steadfast. And some of them failed the test. And all Allah says is reflect upon your pre-Uhud statements and feelings and inclinations and what, how you actually behaved when you were presented with the test. And then this most remarkable revelation, this early on, relatively early on, in 144, that of course, an ayah that becomes very important after the Prophet ﷺ actually dies, that, وَمَا مُحَمَّدٌ إِلَّا رَسُولٌ قَدْ خَلَتْ مِنْ قَبْلِهِ الرُّسُلٌ That coming to, the, to, to this Muslim ummah and say, Allah knows that the worst moment in battle, the moment that so many of you nearly made you fold, 
cave in, break, break down, is that moment when people, the rumors started spreading that the prophet was killed in battle. But here's the thing. Are you in this because you are followers of the prophet, you love the prophet, you like hanging around the prophet, or are you in this for a cause and a principle? Allah knows that so many of you abandoned and ran away when you heard that the prophet was killed. But look at the, the way that they are chided about it. I mean, it is, it is, it is firm, but at the same time not harsh. ومن ينقلب على على عقبيه فلن يضر الله شيئا وسيجزي الله الشاكرين that and those who would have those who would turn away those who would fall and break down because the prophet died they they don't harm Allah but they're the ones who lost Again, when upon the sort of the lessons of reflecting upon defeat is why are you in this battle? Are you really, as the beginning of Ali Omran reminds you, are you these two fi'atan, these two fi'as, you know, the, 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 the two parties that are confronting each other. Are you there because of God and the principles that you are committed to because of God? Or you are, are, are you about a personality cult? Or are you about following, following an individual? Or following a trend? Or... A, a, a journey into introspection. Um, okay. And of course, um, one um, forty-five reminds you of what should be obvious that. You know, those, when the time of death comes, it comes. Um, and that you're not going to, to, to escape it. And كَأَيٍ مِن نَبِيٍ قَاتَلَ مَعَهُ رَبَّانِيُّونَ كَثِيرٌ فَمَا وَهِنُوا فَمَا وَهِنُوا لِمَا أَصَابَهُمْ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَمَا ضَعْفِ وَمَسْتَكَانُوا وَاللَّهُ يُحِبُّ الصَّابِرِينَ وَمَا كَانَ قَبُلْ لَهُمْ إلا أن قالوا ربنا اغفر لنا ذنوبنا وإسرافنا في أمرنا وثبت أقدامنا وانصرنا على قوم الكافرين. This is 146 and 147. I'm just going to flag the, the amazing language in 147 that when Allah is describing those who 
persevered and fought with prophets, those who stood firm with the cause. The, what their being was about, that what their very essence was about, is asking for Allah's forgiveness. And any way that we have acted unjustly towards ourselves, look at the, the, the introspective approach. So they are fought with prophets and their, their primary concern is inwards. How have we been unjust? How have we failed ourselves and it is the result of this repentance, the result of introspection and, 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 and being brave in admitting and confronting one's all's faults. Then they're able to, work, to, to pray, Allah, Make our, make us stand firm, one surna, and give us victory. In some of the more introspective tafsir, you know, Sufi esque, the the correlation between introspection and victory have been noted that so many people pray to Allah to make them victorious, but their attitude is nearly one of entitlement. It's as if we are doing the cause of God a favor by fighting in a side. And there is a lack of introspection and self-purification before one starts thinking that they are worthy of Allah standing by them and making them stand firm and in, and in fact victorious. Okay. Go next to um, one fifty two. Translation. So, and indeed God made good God's promise unto you when by God's leave you were able to defeat your foe until your moment when you lost heart and acted contrary to the prophet's commands and disobeyed after God had brought 
you within view of victory for which you were longing. There were among you such there were among you such as cared for this world alone, just as there were among you such as cared for the life to come. Whereupon, in order that God might put you to test, God prevented you from defeating your foes. But now God has effaced your sin, for God is limitless in God's bounty unto the believers. Um, this 152 is a clear indication to the developments in the Battle of Badr that first you are victorious then because of the weakness that some of you worried about their own self-interest and worried about material profits and material gains and confronting them with the blatant reality that when you display that weakness, you also display the fact that some of you are earthly prone. You're prone towards life on this earth, and that's really what you covet. While others are di differently oriented. And that that was the point of defeat. Now, here, notice the is to Sa'iduna, Walatal Wuna Ala Ahadin, Warasulu Yadokum fi Ukrakum, Fasabakum Gammam Bigam, Likaila Tahzanu Ala Mafatakum, Wala Ma Asabakum, Wallahu Habirum Bima Talam Tamalun. So 153, that description, the Prophet ﷺ under a state of crisis, now he, the Prophet is surrounded and the Meccan army is closing in to do him, to, to kill him. And he's being defended by a small band of people. And this small band of people on the Prophet are calling out to the rest of the panicking Muslims to stand firm and not to panic and not to run away. So when you fled paying no heed to anyone, it's those who panicked and start and while at the rear the prophet is calling out to you this is a most remarkable expression and so at this point God Al-Ghem is 
it's normally translated as woe, but gham is a state of um, severe sadness and um, dismay. It, in modern Arabic, often gham is used as as a um, in in a more casual way. So if you say ana maghmum, means I'm unhappy, but in Classical Arabic, al-ghem is a serious state of sadness. And Allah comments that upon this very difficult test, it's as if Allah is saying, I've compounded your sadness. I added sadness to your sadness. Well, Why? So Allah compounded the sadness, further exasperated the state of defeat. So you can learn a very important lesson. And the lesson that you are supposed to learn is that not to be affected. So, so that you should not grieve. Over what has befallen you. So you do not grieve over what you've lost or what you could have gained. So you don't say, well, you know, God, what an opportunity. Oh, my plans are destroyed. The opportunity is gone. And not what has befallen you or inflicted you. Go back to the very idea of Islam and the godly party. The godly party is supposed to accept that Allah Mulk, Allah is the owner. And that the only question when you are defeated or hurt is in what way should I repent? Not in what way have I failed? Because the point is not to be sad about your failure. The point is to repent in what way should I repent? Is there something that I need to repent for? In our modern language, is there something that I need to fix? Beyond that, you can't grieve over missed opportunities and you can't grieve over the hurt, the pain. 
again, remember, it is laying out the lessons from defeat. And the lessons of sorrow. It's saying, if, if what comes out of this, it's like in our modern language, if you say, if what comes out of this is that you are going to slip into depression and think of, you know, because of me, those 10 people that stood their place in the mountain of Uhud were slaughtered. I can't live with this for the rest of my life. I am, you know, I, the betrayal I've committed and you, you live in misery for the rest of your life. Nothing is gained. There's a huge difference between, okay, I've made a mistake. I own, I own up to this mistake. And the question is, how do I repent for it and do better? And self-flagellation and going over all the ways that you've been a loser in life. And so, and Ghazali, I think it was Ghazali, although I, I might be wrong, but I mean, it's, it, it, and it's not an unusual point that sometimes if actually Allah wants to elevate you, wants to teach you a lesson, sorrows will compound. It is when when Often, if it is, if we, you are no longer in sort of, how do I put it? Um, Allah has given up on you. That you find things come easy in life. And that sorrow itself is an opportunity to learn. And al-ithab al-ghamm bil-ghamm that sorrows compound is an opportunity to reflect, well, maybe I'm too attached to things. Maybe I care about material things. Maybe I, my whole attitude about opportunities in life and loss and gain is wrong. Okay. Then, ثم أنزل عليكم من بعد الغم أمنة نعاسا يخشى طائفة منكم وطائمة وطائفة قد أهمتهم أنفسهم يظنون بالله غير الحق ظن الجاهلية يقولون هل لنا من الأمر من شيء يقولون هل لنا من الأمر من شيء قل إن الأمر كله لله يخفون في أنفسهم ما لا يبدون لك يقولون لو كان لنا من الأمر شيء ما قطنها هنا قل لو كنتم في بيوتكم لبرز الذين كتب عليهم القتل إلى مضاجعهم وليبتلي الله ما في صدوركم وليمحص ما في قلوبكم والله عليم بذات الصدور so one 
154, that there, there are reports that say that in the Battle of Uhud, after the Battle of Uhud, there in in the um, in the in the context of the trauma that there are a number of companions that say that we felt a although we were wounded and bleeding and hurt and all of that that a strange sense of serenity and sort of drowsiness overcame us where we we felt strangely comforted you could i mean i allah alam i'm not sure if these reports what the but the authenticity of these reports i'm they could be historical i'm i'm i don't know but i think the point remains whether these reports are historical or not that there are those who responded to the trauma by drawing closer to Allah and accepting responsibility and accepting that the only issue is how they failed themselves. Not pointing fingers, not being preoccupied by who am I angry at and who can I blame, but how have I failed myself? And accepting that beyond that, it is all in Allah's hands. And those people, that when Allah describes it, a, a sense of amnuas is a, a sense of serenity and calmness and um, assuredness, certitude. But there was some of you that achieved that status, this reaction, while in the aftermath, means they became self-centered. They cared only about themselves. And as a result, they started entertaining doubts. Well, where were those angels? Why didn't angels come fight and, and help us? Well, some of us abandoned their posts, but why should we all suffer because there are some who erred? Did we, didn't we make so many sacrifices? We immigrated from Mecca, or we accepted the immigrants from Mecca, we shared everything with them. You know, did we really deserve to be killed and see our friends killed and be, did we really deserve all of this? such a horrible fate. And some were saying, well, you know, if the prophet would have 
stood up to the majority that said we should go out to fight in Uhud instead of remaining in Medina, this would not have happened. If the Prophet would have not succumbed to the opinion of the major the younger generation, which was the majority, this wouldn't have happened. Others said, you know, from the beginning, and this is the inf the PR, the propaganda of the people who withdrew from um, the battle, the, the 300, the followers of Abdullah ibn Ubay. They were saying, you know, we, we knew this was a suicide mission from the beginning. That's why we withdrew. And that had an impact upon some saying, you know, Abdullah ibn Ubay was right. This was a suicide mission. What were we doing? Going out to fight a vastly, uh, a, a much bigger army that's far better armed than us. And as Allah says, they started, of course, saying, well, you know, we wish if, if we had not gone out, if we would have stayed in Medina, if we would not have followed the results of the Shura, if we would have, if we would have withdrawn with Abdullah bin Ubay as those 300 did, we, we, this would not have been our fate. We, our friends wouldn't have been killed or our loved ones wouldn't have been killed. And Allah then exposes the fact that this type of narrative was not a narrative presented to the Prophet and his close companions. They weren't saying this in front of Ali and Abi Talib or Abu Bakr or Omar. They were, this was the, uh, uh, the backbiting, the, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Ru uh, rumor mills. Are... Not, 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 uh, the, uh, the, you know, the gossip. This was the gossip going on away from the prophet and his, the, the, the you know, the, the, the top leadership. Away from the very close people very close to, but this was the gossip going on and Allah comes and says I know that they don't confront you and tell you this but I know that this is the gossip going on in Medina and Allah cuts to the chase and says Listen. Your gossip is evidence of lack of faith. Because if Allah wanted those who died, wanted them dead, they would die in their beds. But other than that, وَلَقَدْ قَفَى وَلَقَدْ عَفَى اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهُ غَفُورٌ غَفُورٌ حَلِيمٌ 
155 is remarkable because it comes and says, listen, those of you that weakened and fled and got scared and panicked in Uhud, look inwards because what happened to you is the result of shaitan but not the result of shaitan's power it's the result of shaitan taking advantage of your own faults and sins and weaknesses if you want to know what allah's position is allah as as one 55 says وَلَقَدْ عَفَى اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهُ غَفُورٌ Allah is most forgiving and will forgive them for that state, for that reaction in panic. But as Ghazali points out that Allah will forgive them for panicking at that moment. The critical issue is, so now that they know that the reason they panicked, the reason they weakened, is because shaitan exploited their own faults, what are they going to do about these faults? So, means Allah will overlook what you did under panic. But Allah will not necessarily overlook what you do now. If you keep on gossiping and you keep on misdirecting attention and you keep on saying, well, maybe the Prophet shouldn't have done this, maybe the Prophet shouldn't have done that, instead of looking at the way that you are at fault, you are to blame, then you've got another thing coming. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanallah, we uh, right at the point we're talking about shaitan and um, the the battery completely drained from the computer. Um, yeah, it's Subhanallah. It's very strange. Uh, it was charged. Okay, so, yeah, subhanAllah, the, the interruption. Um, so, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ تَوَلَّوا مِنْكُمْ يَوْمَ الْتَقَدْ جَمْعَانِ إِنَّمَا اسْتَزَلَّهُمُ الشَّيْطَانُ بِبَعْضِ مَا كَسَبُوا وَلَقَدْ عَفَى اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهُ غَفُورٌ حَلِيمٌ This is 155. Um, So, as we were saying that, again, you notice in Al-Umran that the, the gaze is turned inwards. And as I was saying that, you, you read in, in a number of commentator, commentaries that 
Allah forgave the moment of panic and the reaction perhaps understandable when you you are confronted with an army flanking you from behind and and the 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 but the aftermath and especially the tendency for people to become um and this this is my my own point of view, if you will, that the tendency for people to become two-faced, to, you know, you 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 are not going to tell the the Prophet ﷺ and his companions or the his close, the leadership, you, you're not going to uh, uh, tell them what you really think, but you go around gossiping about what happened and the moral failure and the avenues that this opens for shaitan are numerous. And 156 and 157 then affirm this lesson in saying, do not say, do not live in the shadow of conditionality. Do not live in the shadow of saying that do not live in the shadow of saying, well, if they, if this would have happened, this would have happened. If they had withdrawn if we didn't go out, if we didn't listen to the, the, the shura, if we didn't do the, this and that would have happened. That type of attitude is unhealthy. And the whole attitude of saying, of sort of living, looking outwards as to, well, you know, there are so, instead of being focused in the ways that you failed, what was your role in the failure? And understand that the essential attitude when it comes to God's cause, if you are claiming you are the party of God, again, in this paradigm set out at the beginning of Ali Amran, two parties meeting, one claiming to be on God's side and against another, is that ultimately, if you are killed in God's way in God's cause whether you are killed in God's cause or you die now interestingly and this is something that um, interestingly you don't find in the commentaries but I've always been struck by this expression that if you are killed 
or you die in Allah's cause. Killed in Allah's cause, someone kills you. But what is dying in Allah's cause? Not being killed in Allah's cause, but dying in Allah's cause. And you can let your, you can comprehend it in, in numerous layered ways, right? Because if you live a principled life in Allah's way, and then death comes to you, in the same way that you've lived this life in Allah's way, that death comes to you in Allah's way. You, you were centered on God's rope all along, holding on to God's rope, not focused on material things, not focused on anger, grievances, grudges, you are, we're focused on self-purification and the holding on our God's rope, and then death comes. It's a remarkable picture that it's like what we would say in our language today, either being killed in, God, in God's cause or living for God's cause. You've actually lived for God's cause. Okay, and then finally for tonight, one of the remarkable, you know, the, 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 the way that the narrative of the Quran, the dynamics of the narrative, the way that the narrative negotiates the feelings of its reader and the understandings and the comprehensions of its reader is truly amazing. Because then it comes and says, after sort of coming and saying, there is gossip. Allah knows there is gossip. Allah knows that there is a tendency to lay the blame on others and to lay the blame on you, the prophet, saying that, well, you know, he shouldn't have done that and shouldn't have done this. And after coming and saying, you know, look, stop blaming and look inwards. Look into yourself. Look at the ways that you, your own sins, open the door for shaitan to weaken you. Understand, you know, cut this nonsense of saying, uh, oh, you know, why pe did people have to die, etc., etc., instead of looking at your commitment towards Allah. Then it comes to the Prophet himself, والسلام, and then says that something that Muslims pass over and have passed over for centuries in 159. Okay, then you prophet, what should your attitude be? 
how should you react to all the turbulence? How should you react to the, all the gossip? And the people who betrayed you, who withdrew from the battle, the people who failed you, the, the fact that you were wounded and that you've lost people who are very dear to you, including your uncle Hamza, who was, grew up with the Prophet and was extremely close to the Prophet's heart. And then it comes and tells the Prophet فَبِمَا رَحْمَةٍ مِنَ اللَّهِ لِنْتَ لَهُمْ Remember that it is a great act of mercy that Allah opened your heart to all these people. لِنْتَ لَهُمْ That it's like saying, I know that in your heart are all those people, even the people who failed you, even the people who betrayed you, even the people who gossip about you. But understand, لَوْ كُنْتَ فَضًّا غَلِيظَ قَلْبِي لَنْفَضُّ مِنْ حَوْلِكَ This is the moment where all the beauty and tenderness of your heart must come, come out. They are now, after Allah told them, look inwards. Don't blame others, blame yourself. In other words, to put it bluntly. They need your support. They need your compassion. They need your understanding. If you were harsh, if you were uncaring, if you were not very soft, they would have, it would have failed. So, what to do? Well, fa'fu anhum, forgive them. Wastaghfir lahum. And pray Ask Allah to forgive their sins. You forgive them and ask Allah to forgive them. Earlier, when Allah knows that the Prophet, bleeding and hurt, prayed for vengeance, Allah said, it's not up to you. Don't do that. And here, Allah comes and says, well, ask to those people, ask Allah, you, you forgive them, and ask Allah to forgive them. And consult with them. This should have been a revolution. He did shura, and because of the shura, he listened to people, and they went out and got defeated. And the gossip is about the shura. The gossip going on in Medina at the time is how the Prophet shouldn't have listened to Shura. That's what the gossip is about. He should have known better. Isn't he a Prophet? Why did he listen to the, to, to the majority opinion, to, the, to what the Shura that people were giving him? And Allah comes 
and says, no. Forgiveness, kindness, and persevere on the path of consulting wisdom. Don't make this defeat about learning how to be authoritarian or despotic. Or say, well, from now on, I should just consult with my closest companions. After all, they're the ones who've been with me the longest and they know everything. You know, why doesn't the Prophet just consult with Ali and Omar and Abu Bakr and Uthman and that's it? Why talk to anyone else? But Allah comes and says, وَشَاوِرْهُمْ فِي الْأَمْرِ And then after the decision is made, تَوَكَّلَ Allah. فَإِنْ عَزَمْتَ فَإِذَا عَزَمْتَ فَتَوَكَّلَ اللَّهِ Now, once the decision is made, ask Allah for support. An entire remarkable philosophy in the wake of defeat. A remarkable negotiation of the psychology of within Medina and a living lesson for audiences for centuries if they would if they would pay attention. You know, in the in the tradition they have this what I consider like a, a, a very a hard-headed or pig-headed debate about whether shura mulzima or or ghayru mulzima. Should you consult with people, and if if you consult, are you bound to follow the opinion of the majority or ghayru mulzima? You're not bound. You just consult and then you do whatever you please. But the ethic is what gets lost in this legal debate about shura mulzima or ghayru mulzima. The, the morality itself is what gets lost. The Prophet ﷺ consulted. He's, he didn't need to consult. He's a prophet. But he consulted, and he followed the opinions of the majority. And the result was not good. And the lesson that comes afterwards is... Forgive them and consult with them. And this is a prophet. A priori, if this is for the prophet, how about other human beings? I mean, how could Allah have constructed a stronger lesson about shura? This is why you you start understanding when you read the Islamic, the early history of Islam, and you find all these groups that were rebelling against the Amawids and and the cause that they would declare is that it's because Shura was lost. What they were expressing is this innate understanding of participatory systems of governance. It's not whether you consult or not. It's whether there is a participatory system. A system that allows people to participate. 
whatever the, 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 the mechanics are. But what is also very important is not what Al Umran says before oh, or, or sorry, what, what the Quran says before Uhud and what the Quran says after Uhud, after Shura. What is important is what was the practice, the living practice of the Prophet long after Uhud. So Uhud is a lesson learned and passed. Did the Prophet in fact practice Shura for the remaining of the time, the remainder of the time? Did he repeat the same behavior for which he was criticized in the wake of Ahud? And the answer is absolutely yes. We have example after example after example of after Ahud, the Prophet continuing on the policy of Shura and following the Shura. An entire moral education, right? Okay. Let's stop here for tonight. Inshallah, next halakha, I think we'll be able to finish Ali Umran. Inshallah. Uh, what what verse? What ayah did we stop at? 160. 160, okay. You know, uh, it's subhanAllah, you do read, by the way, like you do read opinions, scattered opinions in the Islamic tradition, like Ibn Atiyah, who said, who claimed that لا خلافة في وجوب عزل من لا يستشير, that Ibn Atiyah, one of the early uh, uh, juristic authorities, said that there is a consensus that whoever does not implement a system of shura must be removed from power. Uh, but, you know, these opinions were, were always articulated, put in. The state would go out of its way to censor and suppress these opinions. Um, and they, they were never developed. Um, in a systematic and coherent fashion. Alhamdulillah. Um, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Oh, God help me. Um, the, this was so engrossing, um, such uh, an amazing um, session. Like, normally I have enough time, you know, here and there to sort of collect my notes separately about, you know, so I can do highlights at the end, but I didn't even have a chance so forgive me, I'm just kind of um, going to go through my notes um, and I usually star the things that really, uh, that I want to highlight. Um, so the, the initial um, summary of how, where, where we started was extremely powerful um, and 
you know, the, the question of um, how we must strive for moral and ethical consistency. Um, and that Surah Imran has really been teaching us about grabbing onto God's rope of morality and core ethics. Um, and that we really cannot um, know how to pursue good or avoid evil unless we actually understand what is good and what is evil. And that this has to come both from the revelation and from wisdom. And oftentimes what goes wrong is not the, um, what goes wrong is not the impl implementation, but in the pre-implementation phase and the comprehension phase. So we need to understand and comprehend first. Um, and the point about you know, the dietary laws um, and the insistence on the Isra Israelites that, you know, if you understand goodness as dietary laws, um, that's not correct. Um, and that an important part of the path is discernment and distinction and knowing who is on the side of good. Um, and that can be, in, in some cases, Jews and Christians um, uh, that, you know, are um, on that same uh, moral value system as you are and just uh, uh, the Quran emphasizing that nuance um, and to be reminded that um, what matters is when you are tested in hardship that the battle of Badr was an opportunity to have victory and the happiness and all of that but what actually is important is what happens with the example and or with the test of something as extreme and difficult as Uhud and what happens in that context um, and how uh, the narrative about when you go into battle, that the symbolic narrative that you should enter battle with the bravery and certitude and resolution of people who know that God is with you um, as if there are three to 5,000 angels who are with you and that you should persevere um, and uh, okay, so um, And I thought the, the point about after the, the Battle of Uhud um, and with all of these Muslims and the Prophet himself injured and, um, and weak, the symbolic, I mean, the, the message that he is, the, the Prophet is sending by coming forward with 70 people um, to be ready to, to fight. But just even the, the, the moral message, the signal um, like, I mean, you know, you can imagine yourself after being utterly defeated, sort of the next day wondering, okay, now what? We're all, it's over and falling into depression. But then the power, um, you know, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, if you see that, oh my God, no, there's still a group that's out there ready to fight, even though they're injured and, you know, they, they haven't, we haven't lost understanding just the power of that is is tremendous um okay then and after all of the hurt and betrayal and upset um the moral lesson of allah saying to the prophet that it's not up to you um and teaching us the dua that um you know for for people who are the, in the party of god that um, Allah is my um, ally and my comfort, has via Allah, I don't, I don't know the full Arabic, and may Allah deal then, um, deal with these people justly, as opposed to praying for people to be punished. Um, and to understand that despite all of the hurt 
and betrayal and what someone might have done to you at this moment in time that you don't know what may happen even after you're gone. So you don't want to necessarily pray for someone's punishment, um, but that understand that, you know, God may have other plans and maybe a long time after this was part of their opportunity to come back to God. So anyway, it's not up to you. Um, and that your focus is just to be the ideal and focus on being Rabeni. You know, I leave it to God um, and may God respond. It's enough for me that God is with me and that I am on God's side um, should be our, our attitude. Um, and then the fascinating verse 130 where you talk about um, usury and riba and um, how this is just so human, right? Something goes wrong and you start thinking about all the different things that you can blame and start gossiping, you know, oh, like if the prophet hadn't, you know, prevented us from profiting through usury, we could have done so much better. And God coming in and saying, no, that this is wrong um, and that your your ethics should not be, you know, re redefined because of war or the circumstance that is before you, the crisis that is before you. And how beautiful it is then God's lessons to say, okay, I know you've been hurt and I know that the temptation is um, to blame others or doubt the whole ethical project, um, recognize that... Um, the way to healing is first to give up material things, to remember to spend. Um, number two, to control your desire for vengeance or anger. Three, to forgive people um, and to turn inward and repent. And that these are beautiful lessons and principles that God is teaching us. Um, and to be discerning that it's easy to want to blame um, everyone else and be angry at everyone else, but it's important to turn inward, admit your own fault, look at yourself, what, what is it that you could have done? Um, and God telling us to study the past and look at the wisdom um, from previous defeats um, with other people in, in history. Um, not to despair, um, not to become weak and defeated because um, the issue is is whether you feel morally defeated. You have the power yourself to be firm in your moral anchor. You are free in, in, in liberation, not to be subservient to others, and that um, that there are cyclical, you know, there's there's cycles. Things are up and that and they're down. That you will be tested. Um, people who are unjust might prevail, but the point is to that you know in these tests. There, these are the ways that Allah is exerting pressure upon you and purifying your heart and soul and, and seeing, you know, are you going to remain steadfast? Um, and that uh, these are opportunities to, to develop. Um, let's see. Um, the point about... Um, introspection, the connection between introspection and victory, um, how they're connected together, that <clears throat> oftentimes human beings feel entitled that if they are serving God, that they should have God's support, but that the message is that introspection and repentance 
and being brave in confronting one's own faults um, is is what will often um, make God um, make us worthy of God's support and give us victory. Um, and the lessons from from defeat and sorrow, and when God, um, you know, puts sorrow upon sorrow, um, that that is a way to to push you forward. Um, and again, to look at you know what ways should I repent? What do I need to fix? Um, that the point is not to slip into depression. Um, you know, or victimization, but to um, think about, you know, how do I own up to my mistake? How do I repent and do better? Um, it's not about self-flagellation um, or how you're such a loser in life. Um, then nothing is gained if, if that is where you remain, but it's actually to see, you know, where, how can you improve and move forward? Um, and the idea about you know the people or, or the, the story about how people were gossiping and um, you know in the wake of um, the, the alternative group the people that were gossiping and making up you know all kinds of um, stories and reasons and justifications and backbiting um, that God knew what they were saying and that God could forgive people for their reaction in the panic but what are they going to do now that they've been um, you know they've been told that you have to turn inward and, you know, and own up to what you've done, you know, and I mean, all of these things, like I, like you can, everyone has been in these situations, you know, not to speak of war, but situations where you've dealt with people, um, you know, whether you've been hurt by people or betrayed or, um, you know, something has gone wrong. And, you know, it's, it's like, you just see the human reaction. Everyone has gone through this before. It's like, you know, are you going to gossip and blame and, you know, like try to make yourself feel better? Um, or are you actually going to confront yourself and figure out what you could have done better? And even, um, as you said, to affirm the, the lesson of not living in the shadow of conditionality of, well, if this, then that, if that, then that, um, that this is a very unhealthy way of thinking about things. Um, and then the very beautiful idea of, or message of, you know, if you claim that you are in the party of God, or if you are killed or die in God's cause. So, you know, what does that really mean to die in God's cause if you're not killed? You know, it's, it's to be focused on God's rope um, and living for God's cause and then death overcoming you. Um, and then the very beautiful last part is you said that Muslims have passed over for centuries, this idea that the prophet had so much reason to be angry and hurt, but that out of God's mercy, the prophet was very gentle with these people. And had, had he been harsh, that that would have been a failure and people would have left. Um, and that, um, you know, to, to be tender and beautiful and ask and pray for forgiveness um, and to continue to, um, to take counsel with people um, and the emphasis on shura. Um, because I, you know, like how many times have we been um, in the situation as human beings where we, we're working with a group of people and we feel betrayed and it's like, okay, forget it. I'm not going to ask anyone. I'm just going to do this myself. Like that's such a normal human reaction. And to be pushed to say, no, you still need to be open and you need to consult others um, and forgive. 
um, it's such an important lesson. Um, oh, so much. Okay, so I think uh, I know that I've missed a lot, but I mean, just that was incredible. Thank you so much. This was really amazing. Um, there are just no words, <laughs> and I think we all continue to be so grateful. Um, thank you for being with us. This is an amazing session. And today is Tuesday, right? So we will, inshallah, hope to have our last session together um, on Saturday. Inshallah. inshallah. So have a wonderful rest of the week, and we will see you then, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.